In the Gospel of John, the issues are very sharply drawn. In the prologue of John, at chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, "...in Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shined in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not." In the Gospel of John, it's light and darkness. And John will write in 1 John, chapter 5, verse 19, that we are of God, and the whole world lieth in the evil one. The condition is not changed. Paul writes in Colossians 1.13, You were delivered out of the power of darkness and translated into the King of the Son of His love. It's light and darkness. And there's a world in darkness. And as John puts it, the whole world lieth in the evil one. And because of that, I want today to look at a very familiar charge, a very familiar command. The Great Commission of Matthew 28, of Mark 16, and Luke 24. We want to look at the charge or the command. We want to look at the compulsion. I'm convinced the early church did not simply react to the external pressure of a command, but there was a great internal motivation and a spontaneous love and concern that expressed itself as they took the gospel throughout the world. We want to talk about some of the ingredients of that compulsion. And then finally, I'd like to talk about compensation. The one who would, as we've sung just now, rescue the perishing. The one who would, as we've earlier sung, tell it today, is a person who will be richly rewarded. Let's look at the command or the charge, the compulsion, and ultimately the compensation. You know about the command. You know about the charge. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The RSV has it. Preach the gospel in all creation. Preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that disbelieveth shall be condemned. In Matthew's account, Jesus said, All authority, Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, All authority hath been given unto me in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Make disciples of all nations baptizing them into the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It's been well said that this great command has the ring of challenge, the breath of life, the fire of compassion, the spirit of sacrifice, the call of God, the vision of the world and the ultimate objective of God Himself. The command was terse and precise. They were to go. They were to go and to teach. They were to go and preach. And by this teaching and by this preaching, disciples were to be made. And those who were taught and who believed were to be baptized into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Baptized into Christ be another way of saying much the same thing, a biblical way of saying much the same thing. The most militant command, the most far-reaching view for spiritual conquest and for human betterment that the world has ever known, and it fell initially upon a handful of men, mostly Galilean fishermen, unlettered, untrained, untutored. And yet, surprisingly, we read in the Word, Colossians 1.23, about three decades, after the giving of the charge, hardly more than 30 years after the Lord gave that command, we read Colossians 1 at verse 23, 
the hope of the gospel hath been preached in all creation. The hope of the gospel hath been preached in all creation. I want to come back to that in a moment. But I'd like to make the point that it can be safely affirmed that any law, when obeyed, brings benefits to that one who is in compliance with the law. And any law, this would be true in the natural realm. This would be true spiritually as well. Any law, when violated, will execute its vengeance upon the violator. It will avenge itself. This is true of natural law. Let's suppose here that instead of this being the edge of a podium, this is the edge of a skyscraper. And we are free moral agents. Ralph Parlay said in the University of Hard Knocks, we're free immoral agents. We're free moral agents. We've been given the sovereign will. We can make a choice. And so here we stand on the very edge of this skyscraper, and we can step off to certain physical destruction, or we can step back to safety. Now, I want to point out one thing. If you choose to step off, here you are on the edge of the skyscraper, and instead of stepping back, you step off. If you make that choice, and now you're hurtling through space, you can't now decide, you know, when I get down there to the bottom, I think I'll just land lightly like a cat and walk off. You can't do that. No matter what you might think as you hurtle through space, when you get to the bottom, you're going to have immense man. No doubt about that. You see, you have a power of choice. But once you make a choice, there are certain consequences that follow in the wake of that choice. And one of our problems is, we're kind of like the fellow I heard about one time who sowed wild oats all week, and then he prayed for a crop failure on Sunday. That won't work. You know why? Be not deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap. It works that way. And that's true in the natural realm, and that's true in the spiritual realm. Now let's come back to the great charge of Christ. Go preach the gospel to every creature. Go teach all nations. The law that is obeyed brings with it a certain benefit. That's true in the natural realm. So we live in harmony with this law that we call the law of gravity. We don't run around checking it out. We don't test to see if it's called time out. We have an idea that thing works all the time. So we live in harmony with that. The farmer plants the seed, and he does all that in accordance with certain laws certain principles. And when in compliance with those laws, whether it's the natural realm or the spiritual realm, there are benefits, but you decide, I'm going to just run roughshod across the laws of the universe. You know, sometimes young people think, well, I'll do that for a while. I'll sow my wild oats, then I'll pray for a crop failure. But you reap what you sow. Don't check out the law of gravity. Don't run roughshod across the laws of the universe. You'll get a splinter in your soul. Well, now, what about this great spiritual principle in Mark 16, in Matthew 28, Luke 24? Let me tell you something. The history of the church confirms the fact that the church flourished or declined in proportion to its compliance with that great principle. That was true in the first century, the second, etc. To the present, it's true now. The times of greatest growth, and interestingly, it would sometimes be in times of bitterest opposition. He said, go preach it to every creature, and they start doing that, and proud Judaism stands right in the way, and apparently mighty roadblock. 
and the religions of the first century with their, with their priest and with their dogma reared their ugly heads right in the path of the course of truth. But they continued on. Whenever we comply with the principle, benefits accrue. And whenever we disregard it, the time came when opposition began to wane. And when the enthusiasm and the fire and the fervor for the taking of the message began to wane. And the church settled down to refining the refinements and to just talking about it. You know, it'd be easy today to talk a good game and refine the refinements and believe that somehow uh, uh, discourses might be a substitute for putting the thing into practice. And so we'll deal with preaching and speeches instead of practice and discourses instead of doing. Well, times like that came in church history and predictably, I don't have to tell you, those were times of decline and weakness and apathy. Now, let's look again at what they did. Colossians 1.23, the hope of the gospel hath been preached in all creation. How in the world could they have accomplished that? A dozen men didn't do it. Peter, Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, Matthew, etc. It wasn't just a, a dozen men. There is the principle of a multiple progression a kind of chain reaction. In the words of Jesus, look at Matthew's account. Teach all nations, baptizing them. Now, what do we do with these folks that have been taught and baptized? Teach them to observe all things whatsoever I've commanded. And don't, don't you know in the teaching of all things commanded by Jesus, they didn't leave out His last command. Otis Gatewood, in a book he wrote many years ago on You Can Do Personal Work, told about his mother's last words. He was just six years old when she died. And she said, Be a good boy, Otis. And that it had its influence through all the rest of his life. And a loving Lord in His last words on earth said, Teach all nations. Preach the good news to every creature. What are they taking? Hey, they're not going out telling about their experiences. They're not going out and telling about their suffering. They had plenty of it. They're not going and telling about their spiritual experiences or their hardships or how they feel. They're going and preaching the good news that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and raised, according to the Scriptures, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4. That's the message that will save souls. You've had some hardships and I've had some, and we've all had some feelings. But you know what saves people? The fact that God has acted in history. And that Jesus Christ, the God-man, God incarnate, died on a Roman cross for our sins. And every person on earth is to hear that. And the late Jimmy Lovell used to put in his paper a little overstatement, and it was an overstatement. Well, we've been so far over the other way, I think we need it. He said, said, any man has the right to hear the gospel once more than, or any man has the right to hear the gospel once more than any other man would have the right to hear it twice. And I've garbled it, but I think you see the point of it. What Brother Lovell was trying to say is, every man ought to get to have the opportunity to hear the gospel once. And that's true. Preach it to every creature. Now, how did they do that? Well, let's look at the book for a minute. Philippians 1.14, Paul said, Most of the brethren, because of my bonds, have become more abundantly bold to speak the word without fear. Most of the brethren, not just the ones that have been over the Antioch School of Preaching, not just the ones that have had the benefit of fine formal training. Paul had some of that, but it was in error, really. He said, At the feet of the greatest teaching rabbi of that day, Gamaliel. But I'm not sure that helped him a whole lot in preaching the gospel. And those Galilean fishermen 
really hadn't had much of that, but they did a lot in taking the message. But it wasn't just them. Most of the brethren, because of my bonds, are become more abundantly bold to speak the Word. Philippians 1.14, Acts 8.4. You remember the language there. They that were scattered abroad whenever we're preaching the Word. And you go back to the previous verse to find the antecedent of the they, and that's the church. Men and women persecuted, scattered, pressed out of Jerusalem by the brunt of this heavy persecution. Look at the progress reports in Acts. Acts 2.41, They that gladly received His word were baptized. There were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. You don't have a little bitty house church in Jerusalem. You've got 3,000 in Acts 4.4. The number of the men that believed was above 5,000. That's not the whole number. That's just the men that believed. The number of men that believed was above 5,000. Acts 4.4. Acts 6-7, a great company of the priests became obedient unto the faith. Acts 16-5, the churches, notice that, congregations, the churches increased in strength and in number daily, increased in the faith, most translations have it, and in number daily. In Acts 19-10, Paul teaches for two years in the school of Tyrannus in Ephesus, and in 19-10, in that context, we have a most remarkable statement. And so all Asia, meaning Asia Minor, the area occupied by Turkey today, and so all Asia heard the Word. Now, how did they do that? Most of the brethren teach all nations and teach those who are taught and baptized to observe all things. And surely that's going to include that last great command. Now, we've looked at the primitive church. Let's look at the present church. We've looked at the early church. Let's look at the 20th century church. We've seen as they went on bleeding feet with hearts aflame in an impassioned concern for souls, taking it throughout the earth, preaching it to every creature in all creation, Colossians 1.23. Now let's take a look at the church today. And I think George Bailey summed it up succinctly and well in one of those little epigrams so typical of him. He said, the Great Commission has become our great omission. And that's true. That's true. People throughout the world have heard of Coke. But there are lots of folks in this world that do not even know the name Jesus. And there are some folk right in the shadow of our church buildings who have not heard of the plea to restore New Testament Christianity and the great essentials of the good news that He died for our sins, was buried and raised, and how that gospel is appropriated, His simple conditions of pardon. Some of them have not heard. Now, they did it by not just turning it over to a select few a small but powerful minority within the body. It was a matter of most of the brethren. It's a matter of they, the church, being scattered and preaching the Word. And we make appeal today for a return to that. You know, from my boyhood, I've heard about restoring New Testament Christianity. I believe in that. To me, nothing else makes sense. Were it not for that appeal, I'm not sure I'd want to be anything. That's the only thing to me that makes sense religiously. But I want to tell you something. Restoring New Testament Christianity is not just teaching what they taught. I believe that's important. I think today we have lost our concern for continuing in the Apostles' Doctrine, Acts 2.42. Holding fast the pattern of sound words, Titus 1.13. But I want to tell you something. It's not just teaching what they taught. It's living as they lived. It's loving as they loved. It's giving as they gave. It's going and teaching as they would go and teach. That's what restoring Christianity is all about. 
It's not just going down a doctrinal checklist and saying, hey, I believe all that. Though there are some important truths that must not be sacrificed, rooted in the Lordship of Jesus and found in His Word, we must cling to them and have a tenacity for truth. But at the same time, we need to understand that we haven't really restored New Testament Christianity if we're content to sort of fossilize and cluster in comfortable suburbs and be just worshiping societies while a world is lost around us. So in the first century, and we put it this way before, it was the desk of the tax collector, the counter of the merchant, the plow handles of the farmer. These were their pulpits. The slave girl, as she combed the tresses of her haughty mistress, dared to whisper into her ear the story of spiritual freedom. And that's the way they took the message. And that's why about three decades after the charge was given, Paul could say, the hope of the gospel hath been preached in all creation. What was the compulsion back of that? It was not just the external demands of a command. Certainly that pressed upon their consciences. And listen to me. May it cling to our conscience. May it press heavily upon us. In a sense, I think it does. I think that instinctively we know when we read those words in the close of Matthew and Mark and Luke, I think instinctively we know that is the great command. That is the great commission. I think we know that intellectually. And we also know we haven't been doing very much about it. Now, what was the, the great inner compulsion? I want us to look at two or three things. Number one, the immensity of God's love. Number two, the immensity of human need. Number three, the immensity of our responsibility. Number one, the immensity of divine love. You know John 3.16, God so loved that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved, what wondrous measure, Loved and gave the best of heaven, bought us with that matchless treasure. Yea, for us His life was given. God loved. First Timothy 2, 4, God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. You know what stands back of the commission? The divine desire. The great desire of the heart of God that all men might be saved. Why preach it to every creature? God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And the latter makes clear how the farmer is accomplished. How are men saved? By coming to a knowledge of the truth. And that becomes almost a technical term in Scripture for conversion to Christ. God would have all men to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. The grace of God that brings salvation hath appeared to all men. Titus 2.11 and following. Jesus tasted death for every man. Hebrews 2.9 Now I'm not amazed He'd say preach it to every creature. I see something of the divine desire and the immensity of God's love. Could we with ink the ocean fill, were every blade of grass a quill, were the whole earth a parchment made and every man ascribed by trade, to write the love of God above would drain that ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole though stretched from sky to sky. God's love is back of that charge in the close of the gospel accounts. And that ought to be one of the great compulsions within our hearts. The immensity of human need. All both Jews and Greeks are under sin. Romans 3, 9. There's none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3 and 10. There's none that understandeth. There's none that doeth good. There's none that seeketh after God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Read Romans chapter 3 at 9 through 18. And then drop down to that verse we all know. We've all sinned. And come short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 3 at verse 23. Carl Jung, the analyst, said all the old human sins or all the old primitive sins are still there, lurking in the darkened recesses of our modern minds. We don't need a present day or a contemporary student of human behavior to tell us that. 
Paul puts it plainly. That's why the gospel's got to be taken. All of sin. Listen, the gospel is not the cause of sin, but the cure for sin. Men are not lost primarily because they hear and reject the gospel. They're lost because they're in sin. And the gospel is the cure. And where sin is gone, as we sometimes sing, where sin is gone, God's grace must go. The gospel is for all. Now we can see the immensity of our responsibility. You remember that passage in Ezekiel 3. Son of man, I made you a watchman on the wall. If you warn the people and they die in their sins, then they'll die in their sins and they'll perish, but you've delivered yourself. But if you fail to warn the people, Ezekiel chapter 3, 19 and 20, you fail to warn them and they die in their sins, they'll perish. But their blood will I require at your hands. You know, one of the most tragic things would be to go to judgment with blood-stained hands. Responsible for people being lost around us through our own dereliction of duty, our failure to share the good news. I can remember out in the rural churches, we used to sing this a lot. I've heard it, I think, one time here. We don't sing it much anymore. Never did sing it much in the city churches. But we used to sing when in a better land, before the bar we stand, how deeply grieved our souls will be. If some lost one there should cry in dark despair, you never mention him to me. You helped me not to like to see. You met me day by day. You knew I was astray. Yet you never mentioned him to me. Bloodstained hands in judgment, Ezekiel 3. We've plaintively sung about that, but we don't think about it much anymore. We sure don't sing that much anymore. What should our response to this enormous responsibility be? Paul said, I'm debtor to the Greeks, to the barbarians, to men of every place and race, to the extent of my abilities, to Greeks, to barbarians, to wise and unwise. I'm ready to preach the gospel to you that roam also, and I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Romans 1 and 14 through 16. That's what our response ought to be. And while we've brought Paul to the stand to tell us about that, look at Romans chapter 9, about 1 through 3. Paul said, I speak the truth. I say the truth in Christ. I lie not. My conscience also bear me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have a great heaviness and a continual sorrow. The American Standard says, an unceasing pain. And I could wish that I were accursed from Christ for my kinsmen, my brethren according to the flesh. Paul feels that debt so keenly that he talks about sorrow, unceasing sorrow for my countrymen, for my kinsmen, for my brethren who are outside of Christ. And I think maybe we need some of that that would move us to say, I'm debtor and I'm ready and I'm not ashamed and I'm going to tell the story. Remember several months ago, maybe a year or more ago, we talked about that arresting passage in 2 Kings 7, 9. Four lepers go into the Syrian camp. There is famine within the nation of Israel, and there is a foe without, the Syrians. And these lepers say we're going to die anyway, so we're going right into the camp of the enemy. But God had caused the Syrians to miraculously hear the sound of horses and chariots, and they'd fled. They'd thought Israel had hired the Egyptians and others to do battle with them, and so they'd fled. And these Syrians, these uh, lepers, these four lepers got in there, and they found a rendezvous with good fortune. Here's an oasis in a bleak desert. Here is, here is food for the hungry. And they began to gorge themselves and to eat and to drink and to ravish the treasures that had been left by the Syrians. And suddenly they said, we're not doing well. We do not well. The Revised Standard has it. We're not doing right. This is a day of good news. And we hold our peace. We keep silent. If we tarry till the morning light, surely punishment will overtake us. Let us go and tell the king's household. And I think the lesson there is too obvious to demand very much commentary, isn't it? This is the day of good tidings. This is the day of good news. And we've held our peace. We've kept silent. 
If we tarry till the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Be assured it will. Let's go and tell. What's one of the best ways to go and tell? Do it in a very personal way. Same way you'd try to sell insurance. You know the big insurance companies do not build large buildings, fine buildings, attractive edifices, we would call them, and then get people who are adept to stand there and talk to public groups, assemblies about insurance. They do that thing in a one-on-one situation. Let me remind you of something. New York Life can do absolutely nothing for you or your family a thousand years from now. Nothing at all. You can get a piece of the rock, and it won't do a thing for you or your family a thousand years from now. Now, how should we take the gospel to people? You've heard me tell the story about the young man, very much in love with a young lady, forced by circumstances to be away for a year. He said, I'm going to write her every day. He did. 365 days, 365 letters or cards. And at the end of the year, she got married to the postman. Got married to the postman. You see, personal contact pays off. Let's make a resolve. I'm going to carry that track right here in my pocket or in my purse or whatever. I'm going to carry that track with me. I can invite people to come with me to services. I heard a brother, uh, Frank Cope, in Des Moines, Iowa, years ago. Or rather, I heard him in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He'd been working in Des Moines. And he told about a, a, a man and his wife who came out of the United Brethren Church, obeyed the gospel, were rejoicing in the beauty of New Testament Christianity and the power of the gospel. And they went to their friends. They said, we've just become Christians. We can't answer your question. Will you read with us? And they agreed to read Mark's gospel and the book of Acts. And in one year, they led twelve precious souls to Christ. Now, there's some way we can do it. Some people are doing it by correspondence. Some people are mailing tracts to people that they meet, maybe in a kind of chance meeting. But let's get busy somehow communicating the story. What about the compensation? Well, let me tell you something. It will sharpen our focus religiously. I sought my God, my God I could not see. I sought my soul. My soul eluded me. I sought my brother, and I found all three. Whether it's a brother in Adam who is not yet a brother in Christ, or whether it's a brother in Christ who's been overtaken in a fall. When we begin to seek our brother, then religion again takes on its reality. It's lost that with a lot of us. Some of us are playing church. None of it seems very real to us. I'll tell you something that will change that. Get busy trying to reach the lost. And I'll tell you something else. It's vital to our own spiritual self-preservation. John 15, 1 and 2, I'm the vine. You're the branches. Every branch in me that bears fruit, He purges it. He prunes it that it may bear more fruit. The Father does that. But every branch in me that bears not fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. The Christ that will not be shared is the Christ that cannot be kept. And one reason that we need to busy ourselves in telling the story is for our own spiritual self-preservation. He that gathereth not with me scattereth abroad, Jesus said. Matthew 12 at verse 30. Think about this. This is true wisdom. All through the ages, men have sought for wisdom. There's a body of literature in the Old Testament we call wisdom literature. James will have much to say about wisdom, and men seek it. Let me tell you something. Proverbs 11.30, He that winneth souls is wise. It seems to me if we go through a lifetime and we don't try to do that, we're very foolish. You see, the thing that's going to survive, the end of it all, and the wreck of matter and the crash of world, not material things, not even fine church buildings, it's people. Souls. And so we need to be reaching. Think about the joy of the soul winner. Philippians 4.1, Wherefore, my brethren, beloved, my long for, my joy and my crown. My joy and my crown. First Thessalonians 2.18, my joy and my crown. That's the way he looks upon his converts in Thessalonica, 
In Philippi, my joy. I want to read a little bit of a letter from a kinsman of mine who lives up in Bloomington, Indiana. He spends most of his time working with the World Bible School. And he sends out material. He's mentioned in this letter to Nigeria, Sierra Leone, Ghana, Jamaica. And he tells about students who are teaching others, establishing congregations, well taught, instructed in the truth. They meet in homes. And then finally they began to meet in a common place. And let me pick it up at this paragraph and read for a moment. It's so inspiring. To get a letter in the mail and have one of my students tell me that they've been baptized and are now my brother or my sister in the Lord. They know that where they've been worshiping is not according to truth. And so they pull away and they get together and they start their own congregation. There are several who've done this. And World Bible School teachers all over the United States are starting congregations all over the world in this method. People are so anxious to know God's will, to please Him, to worship in the way that He wants. And congregations of the church are started in this way. There are now 1,500 congregations of the Church of Christ in Nigeria that are known and that meet collectively. There's no way of knowing just how many meet in homes and worship according to the true way. Only God knows His own. But I'm looking forward to meeting them in heaven and talking to them. And now I begin to see something of the joy of the soul winner. So many of them want to meet their teachers on earth, but always end up in their letters saying, how that they will meet us on the other side. When one of my students is baptized, I can almost experience the joy that heaven knows when a soul is saved and heaven rejoices. I'm so glad that I've devoted my life to God and teaching His Word to the unsaved. It is a joy. And then down near the end of the letter, he talks about if we didn't have some crosses to bear, then our need for Jesus wouldn't be very great. I need Him a lot. And I look forward to meeting Him as soon as He's used me all up here on earth. I want to tell you something. The fellow who wrote, wrote this letter has taken some hard licks in his life. He's dealt with one of the most difficult human problems that I've ever known of. And in the strength of the Lord, emerged victorious. A person who at one time was absolutely miserable now knows a great joy, and his greatest joy is playing a part in reaching people in these places. Let's know that joy. And let's start right here in Oklahoma City and in Edmond and areas round about us here and move on through Samaria, the Samarias of our world get scant attention, finally reaching even to the uttermost part. You know, we sing that song, Oh, the bitter pain and sorrow that a time could ever be, but I proudly said to Jesus, All of self and none of thee. I really think that what we've talked about today looks back to something that's deep and basic. In 1519, the men of Cortez looked back to see a shocking sight. The ships that brought them to Mexico were being scuttled, destroyed, and that was Cartel's way of saying, Brother, you've crossed the Rubicon. The die is cast. You're now committed. There is no turning back. And there is a desperate need in our lives to know that kind of commitment and to move from all of self and none of thee to none of self and all of thee. And when we do that, the reaching of souls will be the natural, spontaneous response of the heart and life that's really given to Jesus.